we, we talked about Solomon, and I'm, I'm going to do this two more after tonight. It's not going to be an interminable series, but it, um, we are going to do this four lessons on the life of Solomon. And uh, some fascinating character, you know, fa- fascinating Bible character in a lot of different ways. Uh, started off last week by looking at this, this amazing beginning to his kingship. You know, he, he was given basically, well, it seems like he was given a blank check. What do you want? God says, I'll give it to you. And I remember being fascinated by that as a, as a kid, as maybe as any good kid would. You think about God saying, whatever you want, you can have it. I mean, that's pretty cool as a, as a kid. You know, you never got that kind of green light from your parents, certainly, but to get it from, from God, uh, you, can, you can have whatever you want. And it's always interesting to read Solomon's response to that. Solomon essentially says, as, as, as we said last Sunday night, he says, give me an understanding heart. This is what I want. I want an understanding heart, and I want your discernment. I want the ability to discern right and wrong. And that's fascinating. That That's what Solomon asked for, and God said, I'll give it to you. And to, to, be, to have that, we, we talked about the application of that would be that I ask you, you guys, and I hope you did, to pray for that this past week. Pray for Lord, I want to have an understanding heart, and I want to be able to discern right and wrong, especially in those areas where you haven't clearly spoken. So just basically wisdom. I, I'd like to have that wisdom. So that's where we started out last week from Solomon's prayer. And so tonight, we're going to look at a couple of chapters, chapters 4 and 10, with a, a reference to a couple of things from chapter 3 and chapter 9. And then we may go to Proverbs 9 and talk about just a brief idea about wisdom. But by, I mean, here's the, here's the gist of it. God says, yes, you can have it. You can have an understanding heart. You can have wisdom. And because you didn't ask for everything else, I'll give that to you as well. I'll give you the riches. I'll give you the honor. And so I want us to look. This is really interesting to, to look at what God did for Solomon. And I'm going to go fairly quickly through some of this. But I want you to get maybe a, a kind of an overview as to what happens with Solomon. After he prayed that prayer, and God said, I'm going to bless you like you've never even dreamed. And so when we look at 1 Kings 4, that's what we find. There are six or seven different things here, six or seven different categories that I want you to notice that God gave to Solomon. These are the ways in which he excelled. First of all, in chapter 4, he was obviously a great governor, a great political leader. Uh, He did really well. Uh, look at verses 2. I'll tell you, let's, well, verse 1 is very short. 1 Kings 4 1. King Solomon was king over all Israel. These were his high officials Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Uh, Elahoreth and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, were secretaries. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. Zabud, the son of Nathan, was priest. And King's friend Abishar was in charge of the palace, and Adoniram, the son of Abdul, was in charge of the forced labor. Well, I didn't tell you a ton about what's going on here, but look down to verse 21. I'll come back to that, those rulers, in just a second. Verse 21, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, basically, you know what that's saying? This is... The, these, this is the greatest geographical expansion of the nation of Israel ever, okay? It never got to this point before. It'll never get to this point again. This is as, as big as it got. And if, to, to put it, or to give you an idea, 
you got a maybe a rough idea in your mind of what the area around you know, what we call the Holy Land looks like, you got the River Euphrates that comes up out of the Persian Gulf, and it goes, you know, from your perspective, it, it goes far to the north. You got the Tigris and Euphrates, of course, but Euphrates goes to the north, and then it bears to the west, and it serves as the northern boundary here. So when he's talking about this expansion from the Euphrates, that's the northern boundary. And then the Philistines is down by the Mediterranean Sea. And then it says all the way to the border of Egypt. So that's the southern border. So you got, the, you got all the way up from Euphrates to the border of Egypt. You can, in your mind, visualize where Egypt started, where it ended. So that's, that's, that's what you got. Basically, back when God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, he said, I'm going to give you this land. God even gave some markers there, some geographical markers as to how big this land's going to be. This was, this was God saying, you got it. I gave it to you. Now, they, when Joshua took over the land, they, they conquered the land, but it did not expand fully like it does here before, and it's not going to get back to this. So it's pretty neat. What he's saying there is, is he was a really, really good governor. I mean, he did well as far as the land was concerned. Now, back up to those rulers you know, someone compared this to, you've read Team of Rivals about Abraham Lincoln. One of his geniuses, President Lincoln, was his ability to get a bunch of people in the room, all with strong personalities, all with, you know, they believed they were right. They believed it loudly that they were right. And get them in a room and all of them disagreeing with one another vehemently. And for Abraham Lincoln to be able to take that kind of competition and that kind of tension and form some sort of a cohesive policy out of that. That was a great, one of the great things about Abraham Lincoln. You know, you think of that when you got this. You look at those names back in the first part of this. These, these aren't, you know, wallflower kind of, kind of personalities. These are people with strong opinions. Uh, they are in the position they're in because they know how to achieve. And Solomon was able to control these guys, control their personalities and even though there no doubt with disagreements and all that, Solomon was a great governor. So he knew, how to, he knew how to rule people, and he knew how to make the borders of his kingdom expand. So, you know, some of that just gives you an idea about what's going on. God's, of course, God's working with us behind the scenes. But he, he was also a great judge. So he was a great governor. He was a great judge. Didn't have time to look at this last week, but if you've, if you've got time, you might want to read the last 13 verses or so of chapter, uh, chapter 3. This story about Solomon's wisdom. He was a great judge. This is an example of how wise he was. The, you know, the, the woman came to him and said that she, she was a prostitute. She and her friend, another prostitute, both had children about the same time. And, and um, one of them was, she said one of them was dead. And, and, and during the night, she said that the other prostitute, you know, her child died. And during the night, she took my child and replaced it with a dead baby and took my baby to be her own. You know, this, this woman coming to King Solomon, this is an example of his wisdom, and you may remember his answer was, okay, well, here's the answer, because both of them were saying the same thing. And he said, Take, bring the living child, and we'll cut it in half, and we'll give half to one and half to the other. And immediately, of course, the, the biological mother of the child said, no, 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 please, please don't hurt the, the baby. And this was an example in chapter 3 given of how wise Solomon was and how he handled the situation. Of course, then he figured out who the biological mother was, who the mother-child was. Uh, 
he was, he was a great judge. I mean, he knew, he knew how to rule over the people. He knew how to render wise and fair verdicts that, that reflected his compassion. Number three, uh, he was a great builder. You know, it's, we don't have time to look at it, but chapter 9, verse 15 says this. Really, it's all throughout this chapter. But chapter 9, verse 15, this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the middle and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer and so on. Um, Solomon built some amazing buildings. He built the two of which we're most familiar. He built the temple of God and then he built his own house. It took seven years to build the temple. It took 14 years to build his own house. And the way this building was described was really, it must have been amazing. Um, it was later destroyed. And then they rebuilt it. This was hundreds of years later. It was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. And when some of the people who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple, and they were alive when it was reconstructed by Zerubbabel, when they saw the new building, they cried. You may remember this. They wept because they remembered how beautiful Solomon's temple was and how poorly the new temp temple compared to Solomon's. He was an incredible builder. That's the point. I mean, he put a lot into this. And so he was... Very successful. He was a financial genius, the Dave Ramsey of his day. Uh, things were so, gold and silver flowed so freely throughout Israel, it said that silver wasn't even worth much of anything because there was so much of it in Solomon's day. Chapter 4, verse 25 says that every person in Israel lived, quote, under his own vine and, and under his own fig tree. It's like the old saying, there was a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Everybody was doing well. So there was economic success. That's down in 1 Kings 4, 25. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So he was, he was a great financial genius, and so he, he did well. He was an amazing scientist. You look at chapter 4, verse 33. He spoke of trees from the cedar that's in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. His, Reputation got throughout the world that he knew a lot about a lot of a lot of topics. In fact, there was one tradition, a Jewish tradition that held that Solomon was so loved by the birds that the doves would form a canopy with their wings when he left his palace to walk to the temple, that they would get together and they would put their wings together and fly over him so that he would have a moving canopy as he went from the house to the temple. Now that's probably apocryphal. But it gives you an idea as to how people perceived him, that he was so familiar with birds and they loved him so much uh, that that tradition developed over, over time. He was an expert, an internationally known expert in natural history, zoology, ornithology, and botany. Uh, you look at the Proverbs that he wrote. He was a great military leader and commercial developer. Look at, uh, let's skip over to chapter 10, verse 26, just for a second. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Back one chapter, chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. He built a fleet of ships at Ezi and Geber, which is near Elah from the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with his fleet the servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from their gold. I mean, all this language, I don't know if you've read this lately, but all this language is, is pretty telling about 
He developed this army that nobody attacked him. I mean, there was, there was peace in his land because nobody wanted to go against Solomon and his armies. He had this navy that was unrivaled before after as far as Israel was concerned. In fact, the navy opened up trade routes that had never been experienced before by Israel and would never be experienced again. It's just the language here, and I hope you, hope you hear this, that the, the way the narrator is telling this story, the way they would have read this when they first got this text was Solomon was unparalleled. He was... Of all the kings of Israel, Solomon was the one where Israel was respected beyond just this, um, he was respected beyond just the bound of Israel, you know, just this little geographical boundary. His name was known throughout the world. That's what all this, all this means. You read the Song of Solomon, he was skilled at love, a love doctor. He was a prolific author. He wrote uh, 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs. He was an artist, chapter 4, verse 32. It just goes on and on and on. Do you see all this? He asked for understanding heart, and he asked for a discerning spirit. And God, I didn't even talk about the wealth, but he had all this, all this stuff, all these accomplishments. God gave him not only wisdom in the spiritual sense, but he gave him wisdom to know how to to, how to know how to live in the world. Now, look at chapter 10 for a second. 1 Kings 10. This is a story about the Queen of Sheba, and I think it's here so that we might know what I said just a second ago is true, and that is that Israel, for the most part, was, was pretty isolated. It was, I mean, we know a lot about it because we... We read the Old Testament, but as far as the world stage is concerned, Israel was not incredibly influential for the most part. I'm just talking about it in a strictly political sense. Because you had, you know, you had Egypt to the south, you're later going to have Babylon, you're going to have Assyria, you're going to have all these nations. And Israel was not a big player for the most part. But during Solomon's day, they were. They were influential uh, in, in military ways, economic economically, politically, and so on, artistically, and in every way. And so I think chapter 10 is here so that we might understand that. Solomon was a big deal, not just in his little, little nation, but in the world uh, as a whole. And so chapter 10 tells us that that is true, and it gives a specific example. Let's read uh, the first nine verses or so, 1 Kings 10, starting in verse 1. And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord... She came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue of camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. There was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. You gave him 120 talents of gold and so on. 
So this queen comes to test him, and I think this is confirmation of what we read in chapter 4 and what we read in chapter 9 and what we read in the latter part of chapter 10, that Solomon was a big deal not just to Israel but to the world. And so this queen comes, and she's got these riddles that she wants to pose to him. She's heard about his reputation, and, and he, of course, exceeds all of her expectations. One of the things, I want to pause here and talk to us for a second about, you know, what, what do we learn from this, if anything, as far as a matter of application is concerned. Notice what verse 1 says. When the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning, concerning what? Are you looking in your Bible? When she heard of his fame concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him. Near the end of that text that I read, that couple of paragraphs, verse 9, in fact the last verse that I read, she says, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So it starts out by saying, Queen of Sheba, she had heard of the fame of Solomon. Concerning what? Concerning his money? Concerning his accomplishments? No, that's not it. Now all of that was true. She had heard of all that. But specifically concerning the name of the Lord. And when she's going to leave... She knows where the credit goes. And I think that's a fascinating thing. So let's say a word or two to, you know, to us about this. I think there are a couple of ways to read this as far as looking for some sort of an application here. God has blessed you and me. Uh, he's, he's blessed us with success in different ways. He's, he's given us opportunities. Let me just say this. I think that when you do well, when you succeed, whatever you succeed at, if you succeed in education, if you succeed at work, um, if you make money, if you're recognized for some accomplishment, whatever it is, I think one of the lessons we learn from this is that we ought to recognize people around us ought to know that we didn't do that on our own. That money did not come because we're especially smart, smart with financial matters. It came because God has blessed us. The academic achievement didn't come because we're intellectually gifted. It came because God blessed us. The award that you got at work didn't come because you're especially good at your job. Now, all those things may be true. You may be intellectually gifted. You may be good at your job. You may be gifted in handling finances, but... Ultimately, and this is what the Queen of Sheba saw, ultimately the reason you do well, that I do well, if we do, is because of God. She recognized that and she came because she had heard of his fame concerning the name of the Lord. And when she left him, she said, I can see that you serve a great God. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge us to reflect on, on this. I don't know, it's hard to apply because we got... A hundred different situations, you know, a thousand different situations where we may experience some success. I, I want to challenge us to recognize that at this moment in Solomon's life, he knew where it came from, and he gave God the glory. I think he's going to get off base. He's going to, you know, obviously we'll, we'll talk about that later. He's going to, he's going to stop seeing things properly. But, but at this point, 
Solomon recognizes that everything he has comes from God, and he doesn't take credit for it himself. And I think that's a pretty cool lesson, you know, from what we read in our story here. In uh, Matthew 12, 42, Jesus says this, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. He's talking about the queen of Sheba. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Uh, Jesus is in a way the, the king that Solomon never was able to be. Jesus was the fulfillment of Solomon in that Solomon was wise, but he never attained to complete wisdom. Jesus was wisdom personified. And we have not access only to Solomon, but we have access to Jesus, and we reflect his wisdom to the world around us. I want to challenge us as a church, individually, corporately both, to be concerned and be mindful and attentive to opportunities God gives us to engage the world. Uh, we sometimes might have a tendency to kind of hold up and us against the world kind of mentality. The world's, you know, the world's digressing, the world's immoral, the world is heading south in every way. And we need just to hold up and make sure that we stay faithful to the Lord and all that. I think we ought to stay faithful to the Lord, but I think if we disengage from the world, we miss the opportunities. And so I guess what I'm saying to you guys is that you have opportunities where you intersect with the world, at school, at work, on business trips, wherever it is, in communities. You, you intersect with the world, engage the world. That's what Solomon did. It wasn't like this kingdom was closed off. Solomon opened it up so that other people might see the glory of God. This is a small example, but Tre Trevin Wax, who's an author, and <coughs> he writes a pretty good blog as well. But he says, uh, he says, I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but just listen to it. Trevin Wax says that uh, we're getting to the place where you see a married couple walking along down the road pushing a stroller and the dad is engaged and the couple is treating each other well, Wax says you can almost assume that they're Christians. He goes on to write that it's kind of sad, but it also gives an, us an extraordinary moment of opportunity. The church can be a place that shows what healthy, selfless, grace-filled family shaped by God's wisdom look like. You know, I think that's, pretty, that's a pretty interesting reflection. You ever thought about that? And you see, a, you, know, you see a couple, and they seem to love one another, and they've got kids or whatever, and, and you think, hmm, I wonder if they're believers. Trevor Wax is saying there's a pretty good chance they are because that's kind of where we are as a, as a culture. I read, you guys may know the name of Derek Carr, who was signed by the Raiders as an NFL quarterback back in... 14, signed in 14. But just recently, in fact, just a couple months ago, he got the richest extension, contract extension in the NFL ever, like $125 million over five years. Um, he was being interviewed, NFL.com. They, they interviewed him, and they were saying, you know, what are you going to do? You got all this money now. He wasn't in the, you know, going to the soup kitchen before, but he's now got this 
extended contract. And he says this. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to splurge on Chick-fil-A. This is Derek Carr. I like the guy already, don't you? It's like he was only making three or four million before, so he couldn't go to Chick-fil-A very often, I guess. And now that he's making 25 million, he can get whatever he wants. He can get the combo upsize to the large sweet tea. But he says, I'm going to splurge at Chick-fil-A. I'm just going to get whatever I want. <clears throat> By the way, some, you can read the article on NFL.com, but they, they made the observation that he can actually get the expensive spicy chicken combo. He can buy over 20 million of those um, for uh, 20 million in a certain... That's not right. They said 20 million. Maybe it's 20 billion, but 20 million... I should have looked at that more closely, but he can buy a bunch of those combos. But anyway, he goes on, and he says this. Second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give to my church. God gets the first, and he gets the best. And they kept pressing him, and he, is there, you know, what, seriously, what are you going to do with all this money? And he says, you know, I'm just excited about how much good this will do for other people. I thought those are pretty neat. He's uh, maybe second to Dak Prescott, the Cowboys quarterback now. I think Derek Carr is my favorite quarterback in the NFL. That's a pretty neat response, don't you think? I don't know anything about him as far as, you know, religiously. I know he's a, uh, he, would, he would refer to himself as a Christian, certainly. You know, but I think that's a pretty neat response in that, at least it models this. It, it says something to us about, we've got opportunities in the world. Probably not going to get the $125 million contract. But we've got opportunities in the world, or financially, or we've got opportunities to be successful at work in some sort of sphere, right? What do we do with that? What do we do with the glory? Because it's so tempting to take it yourself, isn't it? Well, yeah, you know what? I've worked hard for this. It's all those years of study, uh, all those years of serving down in the mailroom, and here I am, CEO, you know? Whatever, it's just, it, there's a temptation to be self-centered with this. What we learned from Solomon's story is, uh, Queen of Sheba heard, Solomon gave the glory to God. And she heard about the fame of the Lord. When she walked away from it, she said, he serves a great, a great God. Now, we're going to go on with Solomon's life, but I want to close tonight by, by looking at Proverbs 9 just for a second. Proverbs are not going to stay there long. Proverbs 9 is, is Solomon wrote many of the Proverbs, as you know. And Proverbs 9 is about wisdom. There's an application here that flows out of 1 Kings 4 and 10. You think about what, what wisdom looks like. We see it in Solomon personified. We see it here with wisdom being personified in a different kind of way. Look at, we're not going to read this text. I'm going to read two or three verses here. But there are three things I think that are said about wisdom. And, and this, what I'm asking here is, are we wise? Because this is what a wise person does, according to the wise man. Proverbs 9 Verses 8 and 9. First of all, the wise person can receive correction. Look at, look at or listen to Proverbs 9, 8 and 9. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will, still, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Question for you. You want to know, like, am I wise? Are you wise? You want to know that? Well, First question to ask yourself is, how do you handle it when somebody corrects you? How do you, how do you handle it when somebody... That's not easy, is it? And maybe our initial response to that is, well, I'd, honestly, if I, I've got to be honest with you, 
I don't really like it, I don't enjoy it, and I don't respond well. And, and the Proverbs, Solomon here is saying in Proverbs 9, that if you, if you learn from the wisdom of Solomon, but, but more importantly, if you learn from the wisdom of Jesus, it's going to make you a teachable person. That's his point. Second point is in verse 10, it makes you a God-fearing person. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It's going to make you someone who fears God. So you heard this expression, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. There are certain ways in which that expression might carry some influence with us, maybe. I'm a lot more concerned about being on the wrong side of God, though, don't you think? I don't want to be on his wrong side. There are things we learned from history, certainly. But I'm, I'm much more afraid of God. I'm, as long as we understand that word afraid in a biblical sense, I'm much more afraid of God. I stand in awe of God and I fear God than I am of, I hope I am, than I am of the way the world perceives me, you know? At least that's the way I want to be. Here's the third thing. The wise person values fellowship with God above anything else. Chapter 9, Proverbs 9, 16 and 17. Whoever's simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is, is pleasant. Uh, using a sexual kind of metaphor, a situation here with them, like a prostitute who's seducing passers-by. Um, but but it, it stands for something bigger than that. It's this idea of I can do illicit things, I can do things outside of the will of God that are going to hurt my relationship with Him, but they will give me some sort of temporary satisfaction, you know, some sort of pleasure for the moment. But they sever our relationship with God. What, the, what Solomon is saying here, what he learned... What God taught him, what we learned from Jesus is, it's so much better to do things within the will of God. It doesn't sever that fellowship that we have with him. And we're going to go on next Sunday night, Lord willing, and we're going to talk about a next chapter in Solomon's life. Because things aren't always rosy with him. And, and, and I guess my problem with Solomon is, and I've always had a hard time connecting this, I think I mentioned this to you last week, is how do you get from where we are right now to what happens with him later. I mean, how do you get from Solomon saying, Lord, you know what? I just want an understanding spirit. I want a discerning heart. And how do you get from that to some, God saying, I'm going to, because you've asked for this, I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you all this, these riches and all these opportunities. How do you get from there to Solomon turning his back on God? Those are questions we're going to reflect on as we uh, continue and conclude this series over the next couple of weeks. If you're not a Christian tonight, we invite you to come to him. The one who's greater than Solomon, uh, the one whose wisdom exceeds Solomon's by an infinite amount. You can come to him with faith in your heart tonight. Put him on in baptism. He'll wash all your sins away, all your past, whatever that involves, and he'll invite you into communion with himself, and we invite you to, to, uh, to that kind of relationship. We'd love to be a part of that with you. Maybe you need to come back to him because your life hasn't reflected one who's, who's walking within the wisdom of God. If we can do anything for you spiritually, we want to help you however we can. Let's stand and let's sing this song.
been standing just one moment. Uh, the Lord's Supper has been left prepared. If you didn't have the opportunity and would like to partake of that tonight, um, just come up to one of these front pews, and after this song, you will be served. This song is not in the book, but it is uh, a good, wonderful song we've sung a couple times called Highly Exalted. Let us sing. You were despised, you were rejected, Lord, those who passed by. Even averted their gaze from the side, such was the suffering you bore for us. Led like a lamb, a lamb to the slaughter, you spoke not a word, but chose to be silent though you you so much for your son. As we partake of this bread, please help us to focus on the sacrifice that he made for us by dying on the cross. In his name we pray, amen.
Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day you've given us to gather here today and worship you. We ask that as we partake of the fruit of the vine, that you help us remember your son who died on the cross for our sins. And in his name, amen. Having finished the Lord's Supper, we now have the time that we can give back. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for all the blessings that you've given us. As we gather here today, please help us to give back with open hearts. Thank you for your son, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wonderful Sunday, um, wonderful to be able to be together uh, today, and I hope that we'll all go out this week and begin a new um, being living sacrifices for God, uh, working together, helping each other however we can, praying for one another. Let's all stand and sing number 704, number 704, and then we'll have our final prayer and be dismissed. <clears throat> 